I've just got a bad heart. You know, why don't you go a little easier on them? Mom and dad were just doing their best. Here's an accurate imitation of dad. You ready? Where's Peter? An alcoholic in recovery said, the worst part about anything that's self-destructive is that it's so intimate. It becomes so close with your addictions and illnesses that leaving them behind is like killing the part of yourself that taught you how to survive. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. Good to be with you again. Friends, we have so much to cover this week. I'm diving in. Okay, so last week, (laughs) literally I'm diving in. Thank you for listening. I love you all. Here we go. Last week, we talked about dysfunctional family roles, and I got through one role, the hero. The truth is I should do a whole series on this, and I really should expand this, and maybe I will next year do one episode per role. I could probably do five episodes per role. And the reason why is this. These roles are very complex. They're not simple. They overlap. They're functional in childhood. They can even be functional in adulthood. They correspond with our natural personality traits. They layer on personality traits we may not even want because we have to survive our family system. They're so complex. There's so much to say. So I'm going to try and get through, I think it's five roles this week. Is it four? Anyway, whatever it is, we're going to go through these together. Before we do, we're just going to go back in time one week and I'm going to just restate where they arise from. If you haven't listened to that whole episode, listen to it because the whole front half of that episode last week is why we develop them. And that's really, really important to understand. And why is it important to understand? Because you have to have compassion for yourself and you have to have compassion for other people. And if you see these as character flaws, you're not going to have any compassion. When you see them as survival mechanisms, you're going to have a whole lot more compassion for yourself and others. So remember that dysfunctional family roles arise from both imbalance and the family narrative, right? From last week, imbalance and the family narrative. Family roles are an attempt to rebalance the family. So we're trying to bring balance back to the family system from the perceived imbalance of the dysfunctional family system. And remember that these roles generally establish themselves and become fixed in childhood. Well, what does that mean? It means that you're looking at very complex adult family dysfunction through a child's eyes. So what do children do? They become roles. I'll be the firefighter. You be the policeman. I'll be the princess. I'll be the teacher. Okay. These are like childish manifestations in an attempt to try and fill what's missing, to bring the family system back into balance. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the first part is that family roles are an attempt to rebalance the family. It's like bringing order to chaos. But remember that you're trying to bring balance to a dysregulated, imbalanced system. So the metaphor that I used last week is it's like trying to weigh something on an imbalanced scale. It won't work. You can't balance something that's not balanced to begin with, right? But that's what we're trying to do. Again, this is through the lens of children. We're trying to rebalance the system. The second piece is the family narrative. The family narrative, okay? This is what is created And it's based on who the family wants to be, not who the family is. It's the us we want to believe we are, is how I said it last week. That's the family narrative. It's the story of the family as the family wants it to be, not what's true. So we talked about two different types of a family narrative, romanticized and victimized. Okay, the romanticized family narrative is a compelling story. It generates admiration, respect, um, even envy. We want to be the Johnsons. We want to be the Browns. We want to be those people, okay? 
It can generate compassion, pity, sympathy, pride. It's it's all of the great storylines sort of woven in. And here we are just humbly trying to live that out as a family. Okay. The victimized family story is different. It emphasizes the struggle, the sacrifices, the hardship. It doesn't really balance that with opportunities and missed opportunities. The victimized family narrative is always how we're struggling. Okay. So let me give you an example of both quickly. An example of the romanticized family narrative would be something like, you know, in our family, we believe in hard work and humility. We just do our best and trust God to do the rest. You know these families? I do. (laughs) Maybe you were raised in one. Okay. Everything we do is for the praise and glory of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, I'm not knocking, you know, Judeo-Christian tenets or faith. Certainly not. But notice that every part of the narrative is positive and virtuous. There's no shadow. The family narrative is brilliant, radiant. Now, what's the real story? Okay, the real story, which you would work on with a therapist or in a, you know, ACOA meeting, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, the real story would sound something like this. You know, we're trying to pass on the values of hard work and humility to our kids. But to be honest, sometimes we give them too much. We might coddle them more than is healthy and they're somewhat entitled. Um, They're fearful. They don't know how to face their own problems because we've done too much for them. So we kind of blew that a little bit, but we're working on it. And yeah, we're trying to pass on humility. We believe in that value, but our own pride and vanity gets in the way. We're trying to grow. We try and talk about our pride and how our egos show up. We're trying to do that. So I think what we're actually passing down is honesty and grace. But, you know, I don't really know that there's anything consistently wonderful except that we love each other and we stick with it. To see how much more honest that is. It takes into account what's really going on. Like, we can't have this perfect, flawless family where everybody does great. And, you know, it's the Norman Rockwell family. Oh, I had a great childhood. I had a great childhood. I'm glad. Was there any pain? Well, none that I can remember. I'm like, okay. All right. So either you were on heroin throughout your childhood or you're totally in denial because that's just not possible. Okay. That's the romanticized family narrative. Okay, what's the victim family narrative? It's much sorrow, much more sorrowful and much sadder. You know, we just did our best. You know, we tried our hardest. We tried to give the kids everything we could. Sure, we made some mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes. We did our best. Now, I want you to notice that this narrative lacks any personal accountability and responsibility. I'm just a struggling person. You can't ask for more than that right? What's the real story? Very often, the real story is we didn't do our work. We didn't. We came from dysfunctional families. We had dysfunctional upbringings, and we thought we could do it differently with our kids. And we fell back into the same patterns as our parents, and we didn't get help. Our pride stopped us. Life stopped us. We were too busy. We didn't get the help we needed, and we therefore didn't do our best. We didn't give our best. Because we didn't seek healing where we knew we were hurting the kids. We could have talked to professionals. We could have gotten help from spiritual leaders. But we hid behind the smile and we didn't want to lose face. Okay? Now, Vanessa, why be so brutally honest? Because human beings thrive relationally in authenticity. You know, I've had the privilege, the absolute privilege of working with adult 
children and their parents in session trying to heal those relationships. It is one of my favorite things to do, maybe because I will never have the chance to do that. So it's just a real joy to see it happen in front of my eyes. Okay. And the rule of thumb, the rule that we stay with, the rule that we operate in all the time in these sessions is tell the truth. Do not expect your child, I don't care how old they are, 19, 29, 49, do not expect your child to trust you or respect you, which is what children want to feel toward their parents at any age. Do not expect them to trust you or respect you if you are not honest with them. This is the shattering of the family narrative. So yes, if you want relationship, it has to be brutally honest. You know, sweetie, I never told you this before, but in my family of origin, we never talked about such and such. And because we never talked about it, I lived in denial about it my whole life. And I know I brought that denial into our family system. And I am sorry. That is real. Your kids can hear that at a certain age. They're adults. They can hear it. But family systems don't heal because no one is honest. So yes, I'm going to stand pretty high and large on the hill of brutal honesty here. Does it need to be harsh? Does it need to be hurtful? No. But when I say brutally honest, I mean honest. Tell the truth. Okay, so that's the family narrative. That's the imbalance. Last week, we talked about the hero. Let's talk about the scapegoat. Now, I'm going to talk about this from first the Judeo story. It's in the Jewish Bible. It's in the book of Leviticus, the story of the scapegoat. And I thought, should I read? Yes, I'm going to read this to you straight out of the Bible. Okay. So here's what's happening in the nation of Israel. They've come. They're in the desert. Okay. They've left Egypt. They're not quite yet in the promised land. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh God, Christian theology. Well, first of all, it's Jewish theology. Number one, you don't have to take this literally. If you don't believe this literally happened, I truly don't care. What I want you to hear are the themes, because it's still a story that's been around for about 4,500 years, okay? So just hear the themes. There are universal themes here that we need to understand if we're going to understand the role of the scapegoat. So Aaron is the high priest. When he had finished making atonement, and this is in the law, he shall bring forward a live goat. That goat is the scapegoat, okay? Now listen to what he's supposed to do with the scapegoat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. So someone takes the goat away from the people and brings it to the wilderness. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Now listen to this. This is interesting to me. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. Okay, so he's taking off the robes of the priest, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. And also, the man who releases the goat as scapegoat, must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. Now, isn't this interesting? This is where we get the term, the scapegoat. So Aaron selects two goats, one for an offering and one is a scapegoat. And onto the head of that scapegoat, he casts all the sins of the people. That's his job. All of their sins, all of their guilt, all of their badness, all of their wrongs, all of their shame, all of their humiliation, all of their anger, all of their l- missed opportunities, lost tempers, all of it. Every bit of 
shadow, every bit of humanity that's not so pretty gets put on the head of the scapegoat and then it's banished into the wilderness and someone has to take it out there and then let it go. Now, if you're listening to this story and you have any heart at all, aren't you thinking, that poor goat, (laughs) right? That poor little goat, what did the goat do? What a crappy lot in life. You get selected from the herd, all the nasty sins of the people are symbolically poured on you, and then you're let loose in the in the wilderness with no food, no water, no care, no herd, just unfortunately selected, banished into the wilderness in a ritual that symbolizes the freedom of the people from the guilt of their own sins. Now, hopefully these people cared enough to care that the goat was let loose like this. I mean, I hope somebody in the camp, probably the children, were like, hey, what about the goat? (laughs) The poor goat. Why are we doing this to the goat? Maybe we should just apologize, right? But what's interesting to me is after the goat is let loose, everyone is supposed to take off those garments, bathe themselves, and then they're clean of it. And if that is not a perfect metaphor for the role of the scapegoat in a dysfunctional family system, I don't know what is. Because once that goat is sent away, They all get to live peacefully knowing that their sin was sent away from them. And with that goat goes their guilt, their need for self-examination, their accountability, and even the memory of what they've done wrong because it's on the head of the goat in the wilderness. Now, friends, obviously the goat is a symbol. This wasn't actually happening in the nation of Israel. These are all symbolic gestures. But here's the problem in the dysfunctional family system, okay? That goat, that scapegoat is a human being, Most of the time, it is a child. It is a child. You know, the word scapegoat in Hebrew, I'm not going to try and say it in Hebrew. That's where I'm going to stop. The word actually means the goat of departure. It's driven into the wilderness. And this is what happens with the scapegoat in the family system. They have to depart. Why? Because how do you remain in a family system that gives you no respect? All the respect in the family goes to the hero and the counselor. And we're going to talk about that role today. How do you remain in a family system when their opinion of you is irrevocably poor? You cannot win them back. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, how accomplished, you will never be anything but the scapegoat unless or until they get help. Your role will always be negative. No matter what you do, you're always the problem child. So the scapegoat is driven away from the family system, just as that scapegoat was driven away into the wilderness to fend for itself, carrying all the sin on its back. Now, what does that mean for the scapegoat in the family system? Scapegoats are usually very strong people. They're strong-minded, they're opinionated, they're bold, and they're insightful. Now, I want you to contrast this a little bit with the role of the hero, because these are the opposite roles. The hero carries all the goodness, all the praise. We're doing so well. Look at Charlie, captain of the team, president of the class, successful career, impressive, impressive, impressive. Now look at this poor slob, the scapegoat. Always the problem, always rebellious, always in trouble, can't get their life together, can't get a marriage, can't have healthy kids. Always, always, always a negative light on the scapegoat. So the hero very often stays close to the family system, even into adulthood, close to mom and dad. Why? Because it benefits them. They're getting all the positive attention. The roles that leave are the scapegoat and the lost child, and they have to leave. 
because to stay is to be in pain. The scapegoat is attempting to balance the family with truth. Now, the hero is attempting to balance the family with positive achievement, right? We're failing so badly on this side. You know, dad's drunk after five. He can't get off the floor. Mom can't string two sentences together. There's all of these problems over here in the family system. So the hero's going to balance that out by being a superstar. The scapegoat sees all the denial, all the dysfunction, very often early in life. And I'm going to talk about the personality traits that make that possible. And they're trying to balance the family system by speaking the truth or by acting out in ways that show the world, we're not as good as you think we are. And I'm not lying. I'm not going to be part of this denial delusion. Okay. So the hero stays close to the family system because it serves them. And the scapegoat leaves. Okay. The scapegoat is often positioned against the golden child. This reinforces their roles, okay? And this was absolutely true in my family system. And if you come from a dysfunctional family system, this is the truth. The scapegoat and the golden child are pitted against each other. And the mascot and the lost child are very often pitted against each other. I'll say more about that later, okay? Why does it reinforce their roles? Because as good as the hero is, the scapegoat is that bad. And as bad as the scapegoat is, the hero is that good, So the hero sides with the family and protects their status, and then the parents in turn protect the hero. The golden child only gets better in the parents' eyes because they're always protecting the family reputation. The scapegoat gets worse because the scapegoat will keep showing and telling the truth. Remember that the scapegoat doesn't always speak the truth. They act it out. They're acting out the dysfunction, and in that way, they're the truth tellers. The scapegoat is what we would call the repository. They're holding all the unconscious shame. It all gets deposited right into the scapegoat. Now, remember this. Family roles are not established or assigned consciously. Nobody, you know, has a child and holds it in their arms and says, you know what? Someday, little beautiful Patricia, because I can't figure out my own life and I can't wrestle with my own demons, I'm going to hold you up to the world as the hero child. Nobody does this, okay? It's not conscious, but they are maintained intentionally. They are extensions of the dysfunction. The hero is an extension of the dysfunctional ego of the family. It's basically a, dis- it's a dysfunctional extension of the family's denial. We don't have to see what's bad, so we only see what's good. Welcome the hero child. The scapegoat is the extension of the dysfunctional shame. Whatever the parents or the addict or the dysfunctional caregivers in the family can't see or stand or tolerate in themselves, they deposit onto the head of the scapegoat. So it's the repository of unconscious shame. It's also the repository of unconscious anger or unacknowledged anger in the parent. It's projected onto the scapegoat. And what do we say about the scapegoat? Oh, that's the child in the family system that has anger issues. I'm so sorry. Wouldn't you be angry? Friends, remember the goat. Remember the goat brought into the camp, all these sins loaded on the head of the scapegoat, driven out into the wilderness, and then just left alone to die. Wouldn't you be mad? Scapegoats are screaming truth with their behavior before they learn words for it. They're acting out. They're rebellious. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a therapy office with someone who's like, no, I was a brat. No, I was a bad kid. No, I was a terror. And I know I'm looking at a scapegoat. That's how scapegoats talk about themselves. I was a nightmare. They don't talk about their good works. They struggle to see themselves as good. 
they see themselves as black-hearted, bad, bad seed, bad apple. Why? Because they were treated that way. Nobody sought to understand their anger. Nobody was looking at them, unless they had a therapist, nobody's looking at them going, tell me why you're so mad. No, they're just, their behavior is being characterized as problematic and troubling, rebellious. You're not a bad kid. You are rebelling in an unjust environment. The role in and of itself is an injustice. So are all family roles. Because when you put a kid in a role, they can't be anything else. And that's not fair. Being the hero is not just. No kid should have that much responsibility and pressure laid on them. The role of the scapegoat is totally unjust because their reputation is always negative and dark. They're always speaking the truth, whether through words or actions, that the family doesn't want to hear. So scapegoats become this repository of repressed, dark emotion. They carry the badness of the family. No one else has to own it because the scapegoat has it on them. And the scapegoat will be singled out. Very often in therapy, we call the scapegoat the IP, the identified patient, because they're acting out all the dysfunction, not the hero. The hero's just, you know, getting good grades and on the honor roll. You know, meanwhile, the scapegoat's smoking behind school, messing around with people, drinking too much, raising hell, because they're acting out the dysfunction. They're feeling all of it and they're acting it out for the hero For the caretaker, the counselor, those emotions are all repressed. Also for the lost child and the mascot, all of those emotions are repressed. The scapegoat is feeling them. And when you are feeling that much dysfunctional energy, how do you think you're going to act when you're 14 years old? How do you think you're going to act when you're seven years old? And they get carted off to therapists and thrown on medication. And I'm not knocking medication. I'm not. But I am saying a lot of what we're looking at are the results of trauma and dysfunction in the family system and not biological issues in the brain. So now you have a kid that's carrying all the badness in their family. Oh, slap a label on them. Slap a diagnosis on them. Now you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Are we sure? Or is this not a function of being the repository of the family's shame and anger? How much can one little kid take? This isn't a goat. It's a human. So they're singled out. The scapegoat is an easy target. Why? Because often the scapegoat is the most sensitive member of their family. They feel more. They see more. They're very often, for this reason, the whistleblower on the dysfunction because they can see it. They can feel it. They can talk about it. They can own it. They're often very inquisitive. They're insightful. They're smart. Now, what does that mean? It means they're threatening the family narrative. And this is the biggest problem with the scapegoat. And this is why they're going to get neglected and banished into the wilderness. Because the hero makes us look good and you make us look bad. And we haven't dealt with our own stuff and we can't be made to look bad. So being the opposite of the hero, no matter how good, how competent the scapegoat is, they are still seen as the family failure. Too sensitive. To this. To that. If we could all be heroes. Scapegoats as adults struggle with never being good enough. Why? Because the scapegoat in the family system receives the most disrespect. They will never earn respect in the family system because they are placed in that role. Can't get their act together. 
struggle to make it all work. I have sat in a room and you and you know this from listening to last week. I am the family scapegoat and I'm also the mascot. Those were my two roles. The mascot more so when I was younger. And then as soon as I started going to therapy, I absolutely became the scapegoat. <laughs> I was the only one saying the truth about the family. Uh, and there was elements of scapegoating growing up, which is why I fit into that role. But you know, I've sat in a room and listened to another member of my family talk about my failures just out in the open in front of people. Couldn't get this together, couldn't get that together, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of these weaknesses and and some of them are legitimate, like things I've actually struggled with. And thank goodness at that point in my life, I had enough recovery and enough sanity in my head to go, it is absolutely incredible to hear this person talk about my failures and completely forget their own. Like if you had a shred of self-awareness, you would never talk about this failure in my life. This is a glowing failure in yours. But that's the scapegoat. The family doesn't have to see their badness because they see yours. You're the problem. You couldn't get it together. And when I developed a role in my family system where I was like, well, that may be true, but let's look at your own life. (sighs) Hiroshima. No, 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 no. Your role is to hold all the badness and all the failure. You let us be good in our own eyes, just like the role of the goat in that story. Scapegoats do fabulously in therapy. Fabulously. If you are identifying, if you're listening to this podcast, you're like, well, I think I was the scapegoat. Please go to therapy if you haven't already. You're going to cook. You're going to do so well. Why? Because the scapegoat is the one role in the family system who is in the least amount of denial. There's not a lot of walls to break through with a scapegoat as far as what they went through growing up. They know what the issues were. They don't have to protect their parents. They don't have that codependent relationship with their parents. Their parents attacked them, and frankly, the scapegoat goes right back at them. It's not pleasant, but it is what it is. This is the role. When they're grown, scapegoats feel, and they certainly feel this way as children, but certainly as adults, that they're never good enough. Why? Because they didn't receive equal praise in the family system. The accomplishments of the hero, that's where all the praise goes. As adults, scapegoats can be highly accomplished. Why? Because they're very strong people. It takes a lot of strength to carry the sin of the family on your back. They can be very clear-minded. They're very capable. They don't trust themselves. There's a lot of self-doubt because that family narrative is strong. You're weak. You're stupid. You can't do it. You don't have any value. What the scapegoat does in therapy, when they get their help, when they're getting older and they're doing their work, is they start to shred that family narrative even further. And the more they shred the family narrative, the stronger they become. The scapegoat is the truth teller in the family system. Remember, it's either through words or actions. The scapegoat is acting out the dysfunction. They are saying to the world, we are not healthy by their acting out. When the scapegoat does some work later in life, then they can articulate it. Then they can actually say it in words. But before they have the words to say it, I'm talking about teenage years. You're looking at a kid who is acting out and telling the world we are not okay. And families that are dysfunctional hate this because they can't hide. Because the scapegoat won't drink the Kool-Aid. So when they're younger, they act out the family problem. And as they mature, they can name and discuss the family problem instead of acting it out. 
So that's really important. If you're a scapegoat and that was your role, you need to hear me say this. Maturity for you means not acting it out. They do great in therapy. As an adult, the scapegoat will struggle with their faults defining them and not a whole person approach to their identity. So they can live into and believe that role. I'm a good for nothing. I'm a failure. They have low self-esteem. And why? Because they were defined in the family system by their weaknesses, faults, and failures. So they can live to prove themselves to be good enough, not necessarily by everyone else, but to themselves. And very often, and this is tragic, scapegoats become what they are accused of being. So it's hard to believe you can be rejected and dismissed by your family of origin if there's no truth in that narrative. And so let's talk about what growth looks like for the scapegoat. Growth for the scapegoat looks like this. You admit, you know, and you are shredding that family narrative in your mind down to nothing and you're burning the shreds in a fire. The family narrative was false. The hero is not a hero and you are not a scapegoat. You saw it clearly, you did. Now you have to own it in your adult lives and you have to rethink your family and rethink the world as though that were a lie. You have to acknowledge your gifts. You need to start an inventory of your good choices. I have gotten into fights with therapy clients, the scapegoat in the family system. No, I'm really a bad person. Uh -uh, I don't see you that way. No, but Vanessa, I am. Okay, you can say that all day long. You're paying me by the hour. You can say it all day long. I will never see you as a bad person. I will see you as someone who survived. So sometimes get ready to fight with your therapist if they're willing to fight with you. They're going to fight you that you're not a bad person. You need to start seeing your choices, your heart as good. Look at the positive impact you're having on the world. Refuse the family role. Stop being the scapegoat. Once you understand what it is, you can stop being that. Consciousness is everything. Hold others accountable for their actions and how their actions affect you. Don't fall down the spiral of self-blame. That's what scapegoats do. It's my fault. Deeply, it's my fault. Deep down, deep, deep down inside, it's my fault. It's just because I'm a bad person. I'm not lovable. That narrative has to crumble. That is not true. You need boundaries with toxic blaming family members. Those people who treat you like a scapegoat You do need to go into the wilderness and leave your family. You do. You cannot have relationships with toxic blaming people who treat you like a scapegoat. And then just refuse to play into the role. Learn patience with yourself. Scapegoats are very impulsive. Why? Because there's a lot of emotion inside a scapegoat that needs to be worked out. There's anger. There's a sense of injustice. There's a lot of shame. There's fear. And yes, this is true of every role. But right now we're talking about the scapegoat. You need to stop acting these things out. Stop being the black sheep. Don't play into the role. This is just you repeating your family of origin. And for some of us scapegoats, it means leaving the family system. Friends, build a new family. Surround yourself with people who believe in you, who see your goodness, who acknowledge your positive impact on the world. I promise you it will change the whole trajectory of your life. When you are surrounded with people who never knew you as a scapegoat, never treated you like one, we need to get our needs met for community, for grace, for truth, from another place. I remember a long time ago having a conversation with one of my siblings, and this sibling is the lost child, and I'll never forget point blank. She said to me, Vanessa, if you're looking for compassion, our family's the wrong place to go. Can you imagine saying that about your own family? But that came straight from the mouth of the lost child. 
And then I will tell you, and this is classic. This is the classic scapegoat. Years later, we had a conflict about something, and she accused me to my face of not having compassion. And I remember thinking, so you own it that our family has absolutely little to no compassion, but I will still be blamed for lacking compassion in a situation. I mean, it's just, it's always on you. It's always your fault. And to be honest, in that situation, I did lack compassion. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. There was some craziness going on and I saw right through it and I called a spade a spade and I will say that I was right about that human being, but in the moment I did lack compassion. All right, so scapegoat. That's what growth looks like. Draw those boundaries. Refuse to be in communication with toxic people. And here's the, guys, we're going to go over an hour today. This just, it's too much. I didn't want to split it into three episodes. So I'm just going to do a long episode today. Okay, let's talk about the counselor. The counselor, the caretaker, the peacekeeper, it's a lot of the same role. It's the person in the family system who's attempting to bring balance to the family through caretaking or healing the rifts in the family. Okay, this is very often an empathic, compassionate person. They can be very emotionally unstable. Now, why are they emotionally unstable? It's a roller coaster of emotion with these people. Why? Because they're very codependent. This is a highly codependent role, much more so than the scapegoat. Definitely the scapegoat can be codependent. But the caretaker is codependent in the sense of like, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. So they try and make everyone okay so that they feel okay. Because they don't know how to be in an environment where no one's okay or someone's not okay. They can't tolerate that. So they're constantly fixing. Fixing, fixing. Talking. Caretaking. Enabling. This in the family system is very often the enabler. While they're trying to solve everyone's problems and bring the family back into some kind of loving balance, albeit a false one, They're not learning from their mistakes and they're not letting others learn from their mistakes. Okay? They're rushing in to fix it. They're rushing in to smooth out the narrative. They're big believers in the family narrative. The hero and the counselor are always maintaining the family narrative. Mom and dad did their best. Don't be too hard on so-and-so. Okay? The opposite of the scapegoat. The scapegoat's going to raise hell to tell the truth. Not the counselor. The counselor will not let anyone feel their consequences. The ethos of the counselor is if we remove pain, the family will heal. That's not true, but that's how the counselor sees it. So they can be very emotionally invalidating. Oh, there's no reason to be upset. There's no reason to be angry. There's no reason to be shamed. There's no reason to feel anger toward mom and dad because they're constantly trying to remove what they perceive to be the source of the family tension and smooth the whole thing over. Okay, if nobody knows how drunk dad was last night, you know, it'll go better for everybody. So they're up at three o'clock in the morning cleaning up vomit. You know, if nobody knows how much of an idiot mom made of herself being a total narcissist at school today, It'll go better for everybody, so I'm just not going to talk about it. Okay, that's the counselor role, the caretaking role. And there are subsets, and we're going to talk about it. The counselor, the caretaker, they protect the family narrative, and they sacrifice themselves to maintain it by trying to talk or heal everyone in the family into balance. 
Okay. If they're caretaking, they're trying to heal everyone into balance. If they're counseling, they're trying to talk everyone back into balance. Remember that they're highly codependent. If you're not okay, I'm not okay. So what do they do? They save other people from their own consequences. They maintain the family narrative. Victimized, romanticized, and they maintain it very often through sort of a false manipulative form of compassion. Don't be mad at dad. Don't be mad at mom. And they sort of take this victimized approach as if adults are not accountable for their actions. Now, I'm not saying, after I just told you five minutes ago that I lacked compassion, I'm not saying that we should lack compassion in our family systems, but we can hold compassion in one hand and accountability in the other. Parents have to be accountable for being parents, unless you have children in your teenage years. If you have children in adulthood, you will be accountable for being an adult, whether or not you could act like one or not. Now, at the end of the day, is there compassion? Yes, life is hard, the road is long, we know that. But we have to hold both. Otherwise, we slip right into denial. Compassion without accountability is denial. Accountability without compassion is just ruthless harshness. We've got to hold both. The counselor, the caretaker is always going to err on the side of the victimized narrative. They did their best. They corroborate with the family lies. Okay, the family narrative is going to generate a positive attention and a positive role for the counselor. In the family narrative, in the dysfunctional family, the counselor is the good one, the loving one, the compassionate one, the serving one, give you the shirt off their back. Very often, this role intersects with the hero role. You can hear some of those themes, right? Now, what we don't say, what the real story is of the counselor, is that the counselor and the caretaker is highly manipulative, highly manipulative. But Vanessa, I was only trying to help. Okay, hang on. Let's talk through this. First of all, manipulation just means we're trying to get our our needs met, but we don't know how. That's what manipulation is. It means you're trying to get your needs met, but you don't know how to ask for them. So instead of asking and being direct, you manipulate. Now, how do they manipulate in the family system? They try and control everything and everyone through caretaking. And most of the time they can't see this. Why? Because the family narrative about them is that they're good. These are actually very difficult people to work with in therapy in the sense that they cannot grasp their shadow. They can't. They're good. In their own eyes, they're good. Why? Because they were good in their parents' eyes. Their being good suited the family narrative. We don't have to look at our own ugliness. We don't have to deal with our own doubts and flaws and failures because so-and-so is good. Betsy's good. Henry's good. We're good. They're good. We're good. See how codependent this is? But when the family is healing, and I'll talk about that more in a minute, we stop seeing people as good or bad. That sort of black and white thinking goes away. We start to see one another as human. But in the dysfunctional family, the caretaker is good. And so what does that do? It means the parents lean in. You think we're good. We think you're good. We're good. This is a symbiotic relationship. So they control everything through being what? Good. Through caretaking. That reputation of being loving and kind is always maintained in the family system. Now, they can be deeply resentful and self-righteous and blind to themselves. They can be narcissistic, manipulative, controlling. But what's the family story? They're good. 
Now contrast this with the scapegoat narrative. And this is one of the reasons why the scapegoat rejects the narrative, because they can see through it. The caretaker is benefiting from it. The narrative for the caretaker is not painful. It's affirming. So what does the caretaker do in the family system? They actually reinforce all of the roles. Now, every part of the, of the family system at this point in a dysfunctional family system is problematic. But we're going to talk about how the caretaker contributes to that problem. Okay? They reinforce the roles. They will heap the praise and the protection on the, on the hero role because it suits them. The hero usually has a codependent relationship with the caretaker. It's symbiotic. They're protecting each other. And they will, just like the parents, heap blame and accusation on the scapegoat. They're going to keep up with the family narrative. They are going to try and rescue the lost child. Very often, the caretaker is maintaining all of the roles. And part of the reason why they're doing that is because their role has to be maintained if everyone else's role is maintained, and their role is a positive one. Now, what's the toll? The toll is these people have no childhood. A lot like the hero. The hero has that pressure from the start. You have to uphold the goodness of the family. Well, the caretaker has pressure on them too. You've got to hold us all together. You've got to be a therapist at age eight. You're listening to mom talk about dad and dad talk about mom and somehow you got put in the middle. What's the subset of the caretaker? The peacemaker. The peacemaker very often mediates between the parents. They're a little adult. Not in the same way the hero is. The hero is kind of upholding that family narrative. We're not dysfunctional. Look at me. I'm a hero. Well, the caretaker is going, well, nobody can notice how dysfunctional we are because I'm going to smooth all that out before anybody can see it. I'm going to protect mom and dad. They're not necessarily as protective of their siblings, although they are the ones that will protect them sort of from the danger of mom and dad. So in a caretaking role, you have a little adult. They're mediating conflicts. They're stepping into adult situations with an attempt to resolve, and they're triangulating the family drama. So let's talk about that. The caretaker is always triangulating the family drama. What does triangulation mean? It means that point A and point B, these are two people, person A and person B, they have a conflict, and it's between them. It's what we call a dyadic conflict. Two people, a dyad. Now, person A, let's say mom has a conflict with dad. Pretty typical. And instead of mom and dad having the maturity and the know-how to resolve the conflict together, they recruit Benjamin, who's the caretaker in the family system, to resolve the conflict. Now, right now, he's in the role of the peacemaker, the mediator. Okay? So mom, point A, goes C to Benjamin. C goes back to B. Dad, why did you say that to mom? You don't understand mom. What mom needs is blah, 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 blah. So mom, person A, goes to C, Benjamin. C goes back to B. And if you can follow this in your head, what I'm creating is a triangle. And now Benjamin is in the middle of a marital conflict. And this is maybe the most dysfunctional place you can put a kid ever. Ever. The most confusion, the most role reversal, it all comes from triangulating into family parent conflicts. That's triangulation. And it happens all the time. It can happen in friendships. You know, John doesn't get along with Brian. So instead of talking to Brian about it and resolving it, he goes to, you know, Pat over here. And then Pat talks to Brian, who talks to John. It's a mess. Triangulation is very rarely healthy. If you're going to triangulate anybody into a conflict, let it be a therapist. But 
triangulation in a dysfunctional family is as normal as the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. It's just how it goes in dysfunctional families. Nobody knows how to resolve conflict, so everybody's triangulating all over the place. The caretaker is the family janitor. Why? Because they're cleaning up the messes. Again, this might overlap with the hero role. They're stepping into the parenting role. They're providing emotionally what the parents can't give. Love, nurture, could be protection. Um, Care. The caretaker is changing diapers, cleaning up messes, literally cleaning up puke, cleaning up. They're the janitor of the family. They're cleaning up what the parents can't clean. The messes that the parents make that they won't clean up. The family caretaker is reminding everyone to stay on track. Dad, did you deposit your check? Mom, did you call the doctor? Overlaps with the hero role, for sure. But that's the caretaker's role. What's the danger? The danger for the caretaker is that they will experience total rejection and ignorance of their own emotional needs. They live to serve. As adults, the caretaker in the family system will become a nurse, teachers, any kind of caretaking role, counselors, tons of counselors, tons of therapists were caretakers in their family of origin. Great, now I get to do it professionally and get paid. Involve myself in other people's dramas. And they can form very codependent relationships with their clients. I'm not okay if you're not okay. They look like helicopter parents. They can't let people learn from their own consequences. They have to be mopping it up, cleaning it up, the janitor, What are the consequences of being in this role? I said it before. You don't have a childhood. You lost your childhood. These people can grow up to become martyrs, and that is a miserable way to live. No boundaries. Constantly resentful. You don't know how much I give. You don't know how much I did. They can't say no to others' needs, but they can't detach either. They're constantly rescuing people from their consequences. So what does that do? It layers the stress and the tension of the consequence onto the caretaker. What does growth look like? Well, you know what I'm going to say. You got to develop some boundaries, people. (laughs) You got to learn how to say no. What does that look like specifically for a caretaker? It means you have to let people feel their consequences. Take off your nursing hat. Take off your janitor's uniform. Put down the mop. It's not your job. It was your job. But Vanessa, we never would have made it if I hadn't done blah. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. You wouldn't have made it. I believe you. But you know what? People are going to be okay if you step out. No, they won't. Yes, they will. And if they're not, you couldn't have saved them anyway. You have to learn where the lines are. You don't have the right to step into people's lives and tell them what to do. You don't have the right to offer help when people aren't asking for it. You don't have the right to intrude. In your family of origin, you had to. But you're so much more than that. So what does growth look like? It it involves learning to see yourself, your personal identity coming from who you are, not what you do. It's okay when you're not fixing it. It's okay when you're not meeting the need. So how do you get past it? I want you to notice what emotions you feel when the people around you are at odds or suffering. Just notice what you feel. Don't say anything. Be quiet. Shh. Don't do anything. Just notice what you feel. 
Name it. I feel fear. I feel tension. I feel shame. Maybe you feel an empathic kind of shame. They're shamed, so now I feel shame. And instead of doing something about it, I just want you to sit in that feeling and learn to be present in dysfunction without trying to fix it. Why? Because you can't. You can't. I promise you, if you were the caretaker in your family system, if the family got healthy, it is not because of your effort. It is because they decided to go talk to therapists and get healthy. And I don't mean to say this to crush your spirit. Everything you did, you did to survive. And that means, and this is really hard for caretakers to hear, it wasn't about others. It was actually about you. And when you can start to see that in your life, you're healing. When you can start to own that the good you did, quote unquote, the good you did, the service you offered, yes, it was about others' immediate needs in the moment, but it was also about me. I did it for me to stay sane, to believe that I could stay safe in my family system. It turns out I was in the service of other people, but I was in the service of myself. I was dealing with my own anxiety. When you can own that, you're more than halfway home. Because that is the truth. Every role in the family system develops to hold the family system in balance, but it develops so that you will survive. And that role was filled by you so that you would survive. Learning to see that is growth. That doesn't mean you're selfish. It just means you're human. And I want you to watch out for the trigger of hopelessness. We all need to learn the serenity prayer. Okay, if you know it, say it with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. If you're the caretaker, I want you to say this version of this prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, which is everyone, the courage to change the one I can, which is yourself, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the caretaker. All right, the mascot. Oh, the mascot. Okay. The mascot is the clown. It's the clown of the family. It's the goofball, the entertainer. The mascot is attempting to bring balance to the family system by distracting everyone from their pain. Why? Because they are providing comic, charming, endearing, comedic relief. Okay? Mascots are naturally extroverted. They're funny. They can actually be crass. They can sort of push the lines, the boundaries, all for shock effect. Why? Because we want to shock people out of the pain and into another state of being. They can be loud. They're attention-seeking, boisterous. They can even be kind of obnoxious. Mostly they're endearing. They're charming. In childhood, this is the class clown. It's the troublemaker. It's the kid in the back of the room that won't stop talking. I had a science teacher, my biology teacher in ninth grade. Her name was Mrs. Craig. I'll never forget her. And in ninth grade, okay, it was the 90s, I always wore red lipstick. It was like my mother finally let me wear lipstick. And I was like, well, go big or go home. I'm going red. And I wore red lipstick all the time in ninth grade because my mother finally said I could wear makeup. And I would never stop talking, ever. I was the class clown. I was not the class clown. I was just sort of like the charming chatterbox in the back of the room, making friends, keeping everybody lighthearted because, you know, it's biology and biology is depressing for me. So I'm bringing my family role right into biology class. And Mrs. Craig, whenever she wanted me to stop talking, she would just go lips. That's all she called me was lips because I wouldn't stop talking and I wore red lipstick. 
lips. That's all she had to say. And then I would pipe down. And then, you know, of course, you get those forms that the teachers write. And if you look at all the class forms that I have, and I have a stack of them from growing up, I kept all of these. Every single teacher was like, Vanessa will not stop talking, which is very funny because my actual personality is far more introverted than that. But you can see how in the family system, I became the mascot. I lost the ability to be introverted. Why? Because I was talented in the arts. And I knew that if I was talented and I kind of performed those things, I would take the tension out of the family system. So here we have the development of the mascot. Mascots are great at social skills. Why? Because they have to be able to read a room. The mascot can read the room like nobody's business and will adjust their personality to the room that they're in. They often forget their own feelings. They're avoiding pain. You know that old song, make them laugh, make them laugh. Okay, that's the mascot. That's the anthem of the mascot. Whatever you do, make them laugh. When I was little, I would go up into my bedroom and I would put on all these funny songs or even like spiritual songs, like Christian songs. I was raised in this real Christian household and I'd hear, you know, all this dysfunction downstairs or I just knew my family was tense and dysfunctional. And then I would go downstairs and I would literally put on shows five, six, seven years old, I would put the record on. It's the 80s now. And I'd put the record on and I would have, I would recruit all my little girlfriends. I'm not kidding. Me and my best friend, Stephanie, would come up with choreographed dances, lip syncs, all this stuff. And we would sit my family down and we would perform and everybody was just delighted. The baby of the family and the baby of the family is very often the mascot. What was I doing? Just bringing joy where there was pain. That was my job. And if you are a mascot, that's your job. You break the tension with laughter, silliness, goofiness. I had all these funny voices. I used to talk to dogs in a million different voices and just make everybody crack up laughing. That was my job. Now, what was I doing? Acting out of my own anxiety. The mascot has a ton of tension and anxiety inside them, and they relieve it through joy, laughter, diversion, distraction. What does that mean in the family system? They are beloved. Everybody loves the mascot. And typically in a family system, everybody needs the mascot to to stay the mascot. So they don't really want to hear about your pain. They don't want to take you seriously. Why? Because nobody has to feel anything negative when the mascot's around. They're very protected. The mascot is a very protected role in the family system because they serve an important purpose. They dull the pain. Mascots become comedians, actors, performers. They're good at sales. They use their charm to get ahead. They gain a lot of ground using that charm and those people skills. Now, they're the opposite of the hero in the family system in a way because the hero is taken seriously and praised. The mascot is praised for not being taken seriously. And this wounds the mascot in the family system. The hero is always accorded respect. The mascot is never, ever taken seriously enough to get respect. And what does that create inside a mascot? Rage. Frustration. Because they're not seen. Now, what is the harm to the child who then becomes an adult? The mascot is not feeling their feelings. There there can be a very high rate of denial. Their self-concept is incomplete. The family is capitalizing on and exploiting your charm so they don't have to face themselves because if we're all laughing and in this way they serve the same function as the hero role, there's nothing wrong here. Look how amazing so-and-so is. Look, he's a performer. 
Look, he's doing stand-up comedy. And nobody knows the pain inside a mascot because we're not allowed to show it. That's not your job. That's the scapegoat's job. You want that reputation? Go right ahead. No, 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 thanks. I don't want to be the scapegoat. I'd rather be the mascot. See how dysfunctional all of this is? We're just protecting each other's roles. No one is feeling their feelings. Mascots feel objectified because they are. You aren't a person. You're an object. You're a laugh. What are they called? You know, in the old days of the sitcom when they didn't have studio audiences, it's a laugh track. That's what it is. You're the laugh track. You press a button, get the mascot going, and everybody's laughing. Nobody has to feel anything. When I was doing those quotes, you know, in the beginning of the episodes, I always do those little quotes from the mind of the person I'm talking about. Oh, I've got this great impersonation of dad. You know, my mother was from South America. You know this. She's Colombian. And so she spoke beautiful English, but she spoke with a really heavy accent. And I can't tell you how much laughter we enjoyed. And it was good hearted and it was good fun. A lot of it was not dysfunctional. But when we needed a hit of laughter to cut the tension, easiest thing to do, just imitate mom. Ay, manecita. Ay, lisita. I mean, this was my family. Oh, everybody would bust out laughing because mom's idiomatic expressions were always sort of butchered. You know, when it comes time to shovel instead of, you know, when push comes to shove. <laughs> she would do this stuff all the time. Here's a perfect example of being the mascot. Okay. At one point, I don't remember what was happening in my life, but I remember my mom's reaction to it. I was down, you know, because I'm human and humans get down, but I'm not allowed to be down because I'm the mascot when I'm really younger. And so my mother says, and this is just layered and layered and layered mascot coping strategies. I actually think my mother was the mascot in her family as well, for sure. And she goes, Manesita, what is wrong with you? You are not a go happy camper. <laughs> I was like, what, mom? And I realized she was trying to say you're not happy go lucky or you're not a happy camper. <laughs> she, she, she told me you're not a happy go camper. You are not a happy go camper. And so everybody busts out laughing. But here's what was missed. Nobody said, hey, Vanessa. Okay, that's all well and good. Ha ha ha. Funny. Hey, what's wrong? What's going on? Because now you've got two mascots, mother and daughter, cracking everybody up. Feelings are forgotten. The issues are gone. Nobody tended to my heart. So where did that go? Underground. Underground. I'm just going to lean on being charming. I'm going to lean on being endearing and entertaining. And I'm not going to feel anything. Not going to be present with my feelings. Because I switch into mascot mode. You know, I, you listen to this podcast, you know that I recently got married and I was talking to my therapist a few weeks before the wedding and I said, I'm just so afraid I'm not going to be present at it because I'm going to flip into this mode. And he said, yeah, that's a real concern. You know, we talked about it a little bit and friends, I was present for a lot of it, but I will tell you there were moments in the night where you put me in a room and I'm the center of attention with a hundred people and I just flipped into mascot mode and I hate it, but I had to forgive myself. I'm human. But I know that mode for me. It's all about being fun and entertaining. And yes, I have those qualities to me. But I'm also pretty quiet and thoughtful, really. And that part of me just goes away. If you put me in a stressful situation where the pressure's on. And there were moments throughout the wedding where I thought, man, I just wasn't present, fully present in my breath, just there. I was in that mode of like, okay, what do I have to be? What do all these people need me to be? And that is the role in, in the dysfunctional family role. What do these people need me to be? Not who am I? What do they need me to be? 
And the truth is no one needs me to be a mascot. These are just old scripts that are still running in my head. The mascot is never taken seriously. Their deeper thoughts, the wisdom, the insight they have is lost or even worse. And this is a wound. It's dismissed. So the mascot grows up and they struggle to see their own worth. Their serious contributions to the world, the wisdom that they have, they don't see it. Once the mascot, always the mascot. I don't take myself seriously because no one else does. No, no, no. No one else did. But maybe they do now. Your family of origin will not allow you to be taken seriously unless they do copious amounts of work, unless they start to see the family roles. Otherwise, you're going to be pushed to be funny, not serious. And when you are serious, when you do speak truth, when you do speak from wisdom, it will be a struggle for everyone in the family to see you that way. You're not allowed to be thoughtful. You're not allowed to be deep. So what does the mascot do? The mascot blames themselves for the problems in the family because they're not on. There's a lot of self-blame that comes with being a mascot. If things aren't going well, it's got to be on me. I got to turn it on. What does growth look like for the mascot? Turn it off. (laughs) I wish I turned it off the whole night of my wedding, but I'm human. Turn it off. Learn how to be silent. Learn how to breathe. Learn how to be still. Let others have the spotlight and just see what you feel. When you're not the center of attention, when you're not holding the room, when you're not holding court, see what it's like to let others totally shine or just be in their own energy without you feeling like you need to feed the fire. Read. Invest in yourself. Take time to grow. And learn how to take yourself seriously. Develop opinions. Gain wisdom. You are not a laughingstock. You are not a fool in the parade. You're a human being. And yes, you have a great sense of humor. You were blessed with that. But you also have depth and wisdom and courage. You have a sincere heart. And sometimes that means it's serious. I want you to answer this question. If you were the mascot in your family system, do you respect yourself? Do you take yourself seriously? How can you show greater respect to yourself in your relationships? Can you be present in conflict and tension without resorting to goofing off or cracking a joke to lighten it? Now, look, this is chapter eight in the toolbox. The chapter is on humor. If you have that gift, if you know just the right moment to strike a note and relieve the tension in the room with a well-timed joke, please do it. We need you. The whole world needs that kind of humor. I've got clients who can do that, and man, they will just lighten their whole therapy session, and I won't let them avoid their emotions. You know, that's not my job. My job is to point them back to their feelings. But there is a moment in the process where we need humor. We need to just laugh at it. And sometimes we'll go from crying together to laughing together so fast it would make your head spin. And that's just normal. So if you have that gift, use it. But do not use it to avoid your emotions. There's more to you than that. There's depth. There's a wealth of wisdom. There's insight. And there is also silence. And sometimes the greatest gift you can give a situation is silence so that everybody can actually deal with what's happening. Okay. The lost child. This is our last kid. Our last dysfunctional family role. There are more. You know, there's subsets of all of this. But 
Let's talk about the lost child, also known as the loner, the invisible child, the lost child. And this is very interesting because the lost child in my family system is the third child. And when I was doing some research for this, just gathering thoughts, reading other people's work, so helpful. There's so much stuff online about this. Um, Somebody said that somebody wrote that the lost child is very often the third child. And I think we fell into the very sort of classic roles. Hero was oldest. Caretaker was two. Lost child, three. Youngest child, mascot. So interesting. Very predictable very kind of classic presentation of the dysfunctional roles. The lost child is very often introverted, okay? Deep, intelligent. They can be a dreamer. They can be given to fantasy. For this reason, the lost child can be very idealistic. It's like they're searching for a better world somewhere else. It's out there. It's in the books they're reading. They can so often be given toward like ideological fantasy thinking, like a departure from rational thought, a departure from the world, because being in the world is too hard. The lost child copes with the dysfunctional family by going somewhere else. They're lost, lost in a book, lost in video games, lost in the woods, lost in sports, lost over here. It doesn't really matter where they're lost. They're just not present. The lost child is very often a good kid. The hero is a good kid. The caretaker is a good kid. The mascot eh, could go either way. Scapegoat, definitely a bad kid. Sometimes a good student, but a bad kid gets in lots of trouble. But the lost child is very often a good kid, like good grades. They kind of stay out of trouble because they're staying out of everything. They're very withdrawn. They don't participate in the drama of the family system. So the family can actually point to the lost child and say, look, Ricky's doing fine. No drama. That means we must be doing it right. So in that way, the lost child is objectified for the needs of the family system. They can be described as quiet, shy, reserved, and they retreat in self-protection to the fantasy, whatever the fantasy is. The lost child very often has weak relationships growing up. They don't keep friends for long. They're not really deep, loyal, long-term friendships. They struggle with intimacy or they have non-existent relationships. They just don't have friends. And if they do, they don't have long-term friends. They don't know how to build friendships with people that last They're too afraid of intimacy. They can't form relationships and keep them. Very often they have poor social skills. And you might think that sometimes the lost child would present as on the autism spectrum. It's not necessarily true. They may not be autistic at all. They may just be very, very unrehearsed and unpracticed with social skills because they retreated in the family of origin to stay safe. I worked with a lost child who's a client for quite some time. And it was such a great therapeutic relationship. We had such a good time. And this person came so far. But I remember, you know, sort of challenging the notion that they, they had all these diagnoses. And I remember asking this person, like, do you got gut level in your gut? Do you believe that you are incapable of this? Meaning social skills, the ability to connect with others. No, I just don't want to. I'm like, that sounds right. Why don't you want to? Well, because people kind of suck. Okay. Why do they suck? And we went on from there. And what we realized was there was a deep, deep need in this person to connect and connect meaningfully. And so we just started practicing it in session together. Okay, let's try this conversation and let's just kind of have a back and forth and see what happens. This person was so much more capable of connection than they ever realized and they were ever told they were because they were allowed to be the lost child in the family system. But there was a deep felt need for emotional connection and there was beautiful emotional connection that they were capable of. Empathy, reading social cues, 
gratitude, the expression of emotion, the expression of appreciation. It was just beautiful. There was so much there underneath that lost child exterior. But in the family system, you won't see that. You're going to be seeing someone who is withdrawn, shut down, checked out. For that reason, they can look like they're very uncaring. And they will say that. They don't care what goes on in the family system. That is not true. And you know this. If you're a lost child and you're listening to this, you know what I'm saying is true. You did care. You just didn't know how to fix it. The hero's trying to fix it by controlling everybody. The caretaker's trying to fix it by fixing everything. The mascot's trying to fix it by making everybody laugh. The scapegoat is trying to fix it by screaming the truth, either in behavior or words. And you're trying to fix it by like, okay, I'm just not going to add to it. I can't fix it. So let me not make it worse. Or I just can't even be around this. It's too stressful. But they can't take the turmoil. So they, they check out. In relationships, the lost child always subjugates their own needs. They tell themselves they don't have needs. Why? Because their needs weren't met. This is what children do. When your needs are not met, it's not because you didn't have them. It's because nobody met them. But what children tell themselves is, I didn't have that need. Because it's much easier to say, I didn't have a need, than it is to say, I did and it wasn't met. Now again, they might be present on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, but not necessarily so. But they're kind of seen that way and they might even identify that way because the three signs of a lost child are isolated, numb, and a lack of intimacy. And that may look like it's on the spectrum, but it's not necessarily on the spectrum. If they're isolated, they're withdrawn. They enter into life, and by that I mean relationships. They enter into relationships when they want and they withdraw just as quickly. As soon as it gets a little touchy, they withdraw. They're numb. They don't feel their feelings. They claim they don't have them. That's not true. Because I've seen a lot of lost children get pretty angry. That's a feeling. Hello. But they're numb. They're living out of a fantasy life. And as adults, they can make irrational, dangerous decisions looking for a better life. They can invest in extremely toxic relationships, which is ironic. You would think, but the lost child, they don't want the toxicity. They don't want to be in a toxic relationship. They will invest in toxic relationships. Why? Because intimacy is impossible. The outcome is inevitable. Departure, isolation, withdrawal. They're literally reliving the pattern. And if you're a lost child, you know what I'm saying. You keep recreating the pattern. And it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have to remain isolated and withdrawn to stay safe. So I keep getting in relationships with people who force me to out of self-protection, to isolate and withdraw to stay safe. Trying to work out childhood and adulthood. That's what we do. That's what those patterns are all about. There's a lack of intimacy. They fear closeness. They lash out against the truth. They're protecting the fantasy that they live in. And they struggle with trust and interdependency. What does growth look like for the lost child? And we're coming to a close. I know we're way long today, but this is just such a big topic. I had, to, I had to give it what it deserves, which is a lot of thought and care. What does growth look like for the lost child? First of all, form a relationship with a therapist. Okay, that's your first step. Why? Because the boundaries built into the therapeutic relationship are probably going to feel safer to you than a platonic or a romantic relationship right now. Why? The therapist doesn't need anything from you. They need you to show up and they need you to pay for the therapy, for the therapeutic relationship at the very least to remain intact. 
But as far as like emotional needs go, you're not meeting their needs. They're there to meet yours. And that's going to feel really uncomfortable. But it's also safer. Because you don't have to give anything emotionally quite yet that you're not ready to give. A therapist is going to wait that out with you. They're going to take it at your pace. Their emotional needs are not. I mean, look, we're not perfect. We're human. Ideally, our emotional needs are not in the room. Form a relationship with a therapist. Go to therapy consistently. And I want you to start to notice if you trust this person. Notice what trust feels like in your body. The antidote to the lost child is trust. I trust that I can be in this relationship and not get harmed. I trust that you will honor me, that you will not overwhelm me. You've got to reframe your role in the world. Not every situation is your dysfunctional family. You don't have to retreat all the time. Lost children need to learn how to cope with conflict. You need, how, you need to learn how to be gentle, thoughtful, work it through, talk it out. This takes years of work. It's not easy because most lost children are going to retreat so fast. They're going to be like the turtle that just pulls back into their shell or they will blow up in anger. And I'm here to tell you, your anger is valid. You were neglected. Someone should have come after you. Some parent should have come after you and said, hey, get out of your room. Come downstairs and play with us. Come downstairs and talk to us. How was your day? But you were allowed to retreat. And that is neglect. And you should never have been neglected in that way. But now as an adult, you can't change that. But it is your responsibility to re-engage. You have to take a risk. You have to start investing in relationships with people who are safe. Are there toxic relationships in your life that are bringing you drama? If there are, get out of them. I know that's easier said than done. Go back and listen to my episode on leaving toxic. It's not easy. But make a step. Talk about it with a therapist. If you are a lost child, you need to own the feelings you had and have that you have ignored and that were ignored in your family of origin. That means you need to start owning your sadness. You need to start owning your shame. You need to start owning your anger, that your caregivers did not see you enough to fight for you, to bring you back into the fold. Very often, the person who's fighting for and bringing the lost child back into the fold is the caretaker. The mascot's going to try and entertain them back in. If I can be goofy and funny enough, will you come back to us? The caretaker's going to try and soothe and care to love them, nurture them back in. The hero may try, but the hero may not try. Because the lost child doesn't really serve the hero. The scapegoat on some level relates to the lost child because both exist outside the system. The mascot, everyone loves. The caretaker, everyone needs. The hero, everyone respects and reveres. The scapegoat, nobody wants around. And the lost child, nobody noticed you were gone. (laughs) Okay, I'm laughing, but because if we don't laugh, we'll cry, right? This is what it is. These these, These are the roles. If you are the lost child, You've got to start feeling your feelings again. You have feelings. I hate to break it to you. Okay, Jersey Blunt, you feel your feelings. This is how you get out of this role. You have to come alive again. I did a podcast a while ago called Living Numb. Listen to it. This is you. You have been living numb if you're the lost child. Pain is part of life. It can't be escaped. You can't transform it through idealistic, irrational escapism. That is not a 
viable strategy for dealing with your pain. You can't resort to, no, I can live in this fantasy world. No, you can't. You need to live in the real world. So you have to face your pain. You have to admit and process the harms you felt in your family of origin instead of telling yourself it didn't matter. It was fine. Why are you making such a big deal out of it? It wasn't a big deal. Yes, it was. That's your denial speaking. Resist the temptation to retreat into your head. Resist the temptation to cut and run whenever there's tension or difficulty. Learn to work it through slowly. You have always had worth in relationships. You've always been needed. Your presence has always been needed. It wasn't always noted. People didn't always fight for you because your family of origin was dysfunctional, okay? But it's not because you weren't needed or worthwhile or worthy. It's because they didn't know how. That's how the lost child comes home. Okay. Whew. We made it well over an hour. I hope it was worth it. Share this with anyone who needs to hear it. Look, we all have these dysfunctional patterns to some extent. The greater the dysfunction, the more rooted you were in them. Okay. Going back to this quote, the worst part about anything that's self-destructive is that it's so intimate. My friends, your family role is self-destructive. You are not that thing. I am not a mascot. Okay. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of my growth very quickly. I had to learn that I had a voice inside me and I have a friend. God bless Hillary. She'll probably hear this podcast because she listens to it because she is a cheerleader. She is one of my cheerleaders and I love her. She said to me for years, Vanessa, you have a voice that needs to be heard. I don't know if she even knew I was the mascot in my family, but something in her intuited that I needed to hear that. And she's been telling me that easily for 10 years. You have a voice. You're speaking words that need to be heard. She's part of the reason I had the confidence to do a podcast. She is still a part of the the team in my life who's like, no, put it out there. You, you've got a voice that needs to be heard. She walked th- with me through the writing of the toolbox. Okay, I have had to have people in my life to heal from being the mascot. I have had to have people in my life who take me seriously, who believe in my voice. I've also had people in my life as I've healed from being the scapegoat. But if you're in these roles, the hero, the scapegoat, the caretaker, the mascot, the lost child. This isn't your identity. You know, when this person said leaving them behind is like killing the part of yourself that taught you how to survive, yes. You're going to have to kill the respect you get as the hero. You're going to have to kill that part. You're going to have to kill the victimized status you get as the scapegoat. All the world's against me. Yeah, you're going to have to kill that part. You're going to have to kill the reputation for being so kind and good and compassionate you have as the caretaker. You're going to have to kill that part. You're going to have to kill being the center of attention and everyone's beloved little good luck charm if you're the mascot. Yes, you're going to have to kill that. And you're going to have to kill your idealized fantasy world where you can figure out a way to live without pain if you are the lost child. In killing those parts, you will become who you are. Living in a family role is living a two-dimensional life. So how do you come out of it? Name it. Name the role. Feel the feelings you felt in your childhood that the role was suppressing. Process the memories. Consider what healthy would have looked like so that you can reparent yourself and do it one day at a time. All right, let's pause there. Long episode, but maybe you need all of these roles. Maybe there's a lot of overlap in your family. Give it a listen, pass it along, and as always... Your soul work. 
is to discover who you truly are underneath these roles and learn how to love that human being. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's the child inside you. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.